Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming yet-to-be-revealed third Banneker Bones adventure, uh, which to yesterday was going swimmingly. Uh, today, so far, not going so well. Um, this is how it is with writing your, in your bad days, but either way, it should hopefully be available for you in January. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, you can check out Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So go ahead and get yourself uh, a copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written horror novels such as the young adult novel Altogether Now a Zombie Story. Uh, Pizza Delivery, All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story, and of course, the five-volume mega-serial horror novel, The Book of David, uh, which is a very long, very inappropriate for a middle-grade audience uh, novel in the style of Stephen King. If you're curious about that, you can check out the first of five volumes, The Book of David, Chapter One by Robert Kent. Uh, that ebook is free to download as well. Uh, coming up here on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, stay tuned. We are going to be chatting uh, with um, author Laura Martin uh, early next week. She be our first ever. She was our first ever guest, and she'll be our first ever return guest. Uh, we'll be chatting with Sharon M. Draper, and we'll be chatting with author Dan Gutman. And then beyond that, we have many more exciting authors and publishing professionals lined up. Uh, if you want to keep up with the show and what's going on, as always, you can head to middlegradeninja.com. You'll see an entire listing of our scheduled uh, appearances uh, and everything else we've got going on in the world. Uh, so without further ado, today we are very excited. We're going to be chatting with author Alan Woodrow. Alan, how are you today? Um, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for uh, clearing time from your schedule to be here today. Uh, I have very much been enjoying your book, The Curse of the Were-Penguin. I'm very pumped to be able to talk to you about it today. Uh, if you would, just start by uh, giving an esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and how uh, how you got started writing and where you're at in your writing career now. Sure. Well, I have been uh, blessed as a professional writer for pretty much my entire uh, career. Um, I started off in advertising, as, as, as you mentioned, and did that for a long time as uh, writing television commercials, radio commercials, print ads, billboards, websites, uh, you know, and, and down the line. Uh, always had wanted to be an author. It had been a dream of mine ever since I was a little kid. Uh, but for, for many reasons in pursuit, mostly the assumption that I would fail and no one wants to fail. Who would want to read a book by me? Why am I good enough to, to be an author? So I kind of put those dreams and those hopes aside and concentrated on writing advertising, which was a way to write and make a living because I love to write, but one that uh, would be able to support my family. Then as I got older and I had kids and they were starting to read some pretty awesome stuff, some chapter books and, and early novels, and I was reading them with my kids and was really impressed by this whole genre of of books and writing that I had been totally unaware of as a as an adult with without kids. It's not something I gravitated toward. And certainly the types of books that are available today are not at all like they were when I was younger. So being exposed to these books really got me excited about writing for kids myself and decided to take the plunge. And I've been very fortunate now to have uh, nearly 30 books that have been published in the about 10 years since I first decided I was going to try to write a children's book. Oh, you said 30 books in 10 years? 
That's right. No, not all under my name. About a, only eight or nine of them under my name. I write under a few different pen names. I write for books based on some animated television shows. I write a number of educational leveled readers that go direct to classroom. Uh, those usually don't have my name on them. They have a variety of different pen names that I use. Uh, but books with my own name on them, novels and such, there are, I think, eight uh, to date. And so originally, did you, before you discover, rediscovered uh, children's books with your children, did you want to write uh, for adults? You know, one of the reasons why I didn't pursue a career as, as an author was I didn't know what I wanted to write about. Through the years, I would try many different things. I'd write a horror story. I'd try to write uh, an adventure story. I'd try to write something that was more realistic uh, and, and uh, never really found my voice. I would struggle with these things. I would try to write it for a few weeks and put them aside and, and lose interest. And it really wasn't until I tried to write children's books that I really embraced it and found, wow, this is fun. This is something I can do. This is something I enjoy doing, something I can be passionate about. Um, if I hadn't had kids, I probably never would have thought of writing children's books. So I owe my career to my kids, I guess. They exposed me to this whole world of children's books and really developed my passion for writing for them. So what is it that, because uh, at this point, uh, 30 books, and I, I know uh, not all of them uh, are, are the uh, Alan Woodrow children's books, but you know, nine of them are. Um, what is it about writing for children that you love that, that keeps you coming back again and again to do more? Most of my books are funny, at least hopefully, and I think I have a very uh, sophomoric sense of humor. So first of all, uh, my voice, I think, naturally gravitates toward that age group. I don't think I've grown up too much since I was in fourth grade. So writing for children comes really just natural to me. Uh, even if I try to write uh, for older audiences, uh, language and the plots and the sentiments all sort of gravitate back toward being a kid. So really when I decided to write for kids, it all was a very natural progress. It wasn't something that was a stretch for me. It was something that really felt comfortable with the types of things I was already writing. And when you're uh, writing humor, do you, do, you, do you crack yourself up? Do you find yourself laughing aloud there in the uh, office by yourself? I can't say laugh out certainly things that I find funny and that make me feel warm inside and I read them again and I still have that feeling of, of warmth and happiness that humor can bring you. I, I'm not the sort that laughs out loud, uh, even in conversation, <laughs> although I, I just did. Um, but no, I mean, nothing that I ever say to myself is, is so funny, I think, uh, that makes me uh, laugh out loud, but I will chuckle inside, I guess. Well, I'm a bit of a narcissist. I'll, I'll sit at my desk and I'll, I'll laugh aloud. I'm like, oh, Kent, you've done it again. Cracking me up. <laughs> <laughs> and that helped mind my wife uh, walking into the office at that moment. But if I'm writing a sad scene and I'm kind of wiping a little bit of a tear, I, I don't want anybody to see that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's my private time. I, don't, uh, I, I never cry in real life. Um, but if I'm writing a story and I'm processing it in a nice, safe place where it's just me all alone, eh, that, that's maybe a safe place to cry just a little bit. 
So somebody were to, to walk into the office at that point, it'd be like walking in on me when I'm changing. Like, no, this is private. Let me let me finish my story. <laughs> Certainly movies and some books make me cry and laugh out loud, but I can't say my own work does. Um, you know, I've already kind of know what's coming. So uh, it's not surprising me or shocking me in, in a way that would make me sad or, 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 or laughing because I'm already kind of in on the know, so to speak, with those things. Well, I feel, uh, like I say, appropriately uh, narcissistic when it happens because I, I can, I, I can see myself from outside myself wiping a tear from my eye and saying, "Oh, dang it, I'm so good," <laughs> and then I'm insufferable. I, can, I have to get away from myself at that point. <laughs> I would say I probably struggle more with the uh, anti-narcissism, uh, as like many writers, I'm constantly plagued with with assumptions of of self-doubt. And uh, I'm a hack and I'm fooling people with my writing and trying to constantly live up to overcoming those self-doubts. So uh, less, much less of a narcissist than a, uh, uh, someone who's, uh, I'm not sure what the best word to use is as the anti-narcissist, um, but uh, someone who definitely uh, gears themselves more toward uh, doubting uh, than uh, self-confidence and overconfidence. Well, let's, uh, let's start there, because obviously 30 books in 10 years, uh, somewhere in there, you found a way to, to work through that and get over at least enough to get the thing on paper. Uh, so what was it that allowed you to get over your own self-doubt uh, and start writing professionally? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, I wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. In fact, in third grade, we had a project in school where we had to write a book. And it wasn't a book like you'd find in your library or bookshelves. It was a construction paper cover and had eight really horribly written scribbles of pages and bad illustrations I couldn't write or draw at all in third grade. But I loved doing it. I decided right then in third grade that I was going to grow up to become an author. So I even have it written down from a third grade uh, newsletter that was sent around school uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I wrote, I wanted to be a writer. So something I wanted to do forever. And I continued to write and write and practice. I knew that to get good at anything, right? You got to practice. So I wrote all through elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I wanted to be a writer. And I was going to college. And I thought to myself, I can't be a writer. I'm not going to, who's going to want to read an Alan Woodrow book? That's just crazy. That's a waste of time. I'm going to do something more practical. In the back of my head was still this voice that said, Alan, right, you want to be a writer. So I went into advertising, as I mentioned, and I wrote and I wrote, and I kept on trying to write books, never found my voice. And every time I found something I liked, don't write. And until many years, kids, and I was reading their stuff, and I thought, wow, I really love children's books. Maybe I should try to ignore that voice in my head that said, Alan, you're not good enough. Alan, you're going to fail. And I should try. What's the worst that can happen? But if I had this voice in my head for decades telling me to write and I've listened to it, I can continue to listen to it and I could never write or I could finally decide to take that plunge that I've been promising, my, promising myself I would take since I was in third grade. So ignoring that voice and teaching myself that, Alan, it's okay to, to fail. It's okay to not succeed was, to me, the biggest part of the process for me, just making that decision to try 
and not being scared of failure was the deciding factor that helped me become a writer. I might have continued my rest of my life listening to that voice and never succeeding. And it took a lot of self-motivation and a lot of perseverance and a lot of struggling to make that voice go away. But finally I did. But that voice still raises its 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 head every now and then. It still speaks to me as I'm writing anything. It reminds me, Alan, you're not good enough. Alan, what are you doing? And I'm fighting that voice, pushing it away to continue to write. But fortunately, I've had enough successes that I can speak pretty well to that voice and tell it to go away with, with some fairly uh, well self-assurance that that voice isn't going to take over my life anymore, but certainly it's still there and will probably always be there. And I think part of the reason why I've been successful is because I had that voice and I'm not conf so confident in my own writing that I'm relying on my writing to be good enough. I'm, I'm revising and going back and forth and revising, revising constant times on my work to make it better, to constantly prove to myself that I am good enough. And that's certainly one of the reasons why I've been successful. I think the uh, yeah the proof is in the pudding. While I'm while I'm crying at my own brilliance here, <laughs> revising and, and working harder, it, it's paying off. So even now, thirty books in, um, you're still you're still hearing that voice and still having to have that battle. It doesn't go away. I don't think it ever goes away. I don't know if I want it to go away. As as I, as I mentioned, I I think it elevates my writing. If I was so self confident that my writing was genius. I might not push myself to go beyond, to do that 10th revision, 9 revisions, to spend that extra few hours on a Sunday night making that scene perfect rather than saying, ah, that scene is pretty good. But it's that constant struggle and battle to make it better, to prove to myself that that voice is not going to win out. That helps me become successful and has helped my writing tremendously. And is that? Uh, is that a battle you've had to have in other areas of your life where you've had to gain up your confidence? I, I'm not going to be an advertiser. No, I'm going to do advertising. Uh, or is it is it just writing where it, where it rears its ugly head? I think it's probably there in many things, but certainly writing is the number one thing. I don't have a lack of self-confidence in a lot of other things that I do, whether it's playing games or whether it's meeting people or having relationships, or or doing non-writing work. I usually am pretty confident that I'm su successful at those things. So it's mostly pinpointed uh, at my writing. And maybe that's because writing is what I'm so passionate about. It matters to me, my writing, and something that doesn't maybe is important to me, um, maybe doesn't cause me out those things, not that relationships and, 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 and social aspects and things aren't important to me, uh, but just in a different way. Oh, sure. No, I, uh, I absolutely 100% understand. You know, I have a, a wife and a child and I love them very much. And I, I sometimes wonder why am I so focused on this on this story that I'm working on that means so very much to me when I have all this wonderfulness in my life. I could just put it in the corner and, and walk away and, and, and go live my life. And then, nope, it calls me right back. I, I think it might be a sickness. <laughs> One of those things that when I when I talk with young writers, I'm like, look, if I could talk you out of writing, be talked out of it. Uh, you weren't that serious anyway, <laughs> because the real writers can't stop. It, it, it matters that much to them. They have to get in there and they have to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true for me, as I mentioned, a third and I was a kid, right? And I was eight years old. I wanted to be a writer and I've always had that passion in me. It's not something that reared up and I've, as, as uh, oh, I could try this, maybe see what works. It was something I, I had to do. And even though I didn't write for a long time because I was convinced that I wouldn't succeed, that voice was still there telling me, Alan, try right and again overcoming that voice of failure was 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 really important uh to me and, and really spurred me to uh, whatever success uh, i've been fortunate enough to have but you know if i didn't have that passion and that desire to write it would i probably wouldn't have been able to ignore that voice so it was really a combination of that urge to to write that helped me uh, overcome uh that fear of failure that i had and I suspect uh, that there are probably a number of people who are watching or listening um, who maybe will find themselves with some, I'm sure everybody that's watching or listening has, has self-doubt, uh, unless they're a sociopath. <laughs> There's going to be some level of self-doubt in there. So that day one, when you finally say, okay, I'm going to stop listening to this voice, and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write something. What does that finally look like? How do you get yourself in front of the computer? Are you... How, how many words are you shooting for? What does that look like when you finally say, the heck with the, the, the voice of day, day, I'm doing this? Well, I made that decision, which was actually my New Year's resolution in 2009. So 2009, I had never written children before. I never tried to, but New Year's 2009, I made a resolution. I was going to write a children's book. And I gave myself five years to finish a book and to find an agent or find someone interested in, in that book. But I also knew that I was going to finally embrace this challenge that I had ignored for so long. I couldn't just do it, you know, helter shelter. I needed to be serious about it. So not only was it a decision to ignore that voice, but it was a decision to take that goal, that resolution seriously and to give 100%. Because I knew that if I, after not having done it for so long, if I just did it, meh, just kind of died and failed. That wouldn't have uh, necessarily justified uh, all this all this waiting. So I decided that if I was going to do anything in life, let's say I wanted to be an electrician, I know nothing about electronics, so that's a good thing to choose. I couldn't just take apart my television set or um, rewire my house. I would have to know what I was doing. I'd have to study and have to read up on it, maybe take some classes. And I decided I needed to do the same thing. I couldn't just write a children's book without having known nothing about writing children's books because other than reading them, I never tried or really did anything. I was as green and as ignorant about the process as anyone could possibly be. So I took some classes. I read some books on how to write children's books. I immersed myself. I joined the SEBWI, which I'm, Rob, I'm sure you're familiar with, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is a great organization. And I took advantage of their resources so that if I was going to try to write a children's book, I was going to give 100% to write a children's book. And one of those aspects of trying 100% was I knew I had to write every single day. When you talk to people who want to be writers, you often ask them, you know, people all over the place want to be a writer and write a book. And so it's very common to have a conversation with someone and they say, yeah, I've been writing a book for 10 years, for 20 years, and I'm still working on it. And you realize the reason someone works on a book for 10 years or 20 years is because they're not writing every day. And it's easy to take a day off and then say, I don't want to feel like writing today. And then 
Oh, the next day it comes. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I didn't write yesterday. I'm not going to feel like writing today either. And all of a sudden, it's been a week or a month or two months, and you haven't written. Because I was in that spiral for a long time, and I wasn't seriously taking the opportunity to write. I was convinced I wouldn't, so I would use excuses not to write. So part of that resolution was the decision to write every single day, Monday through Sunday, uh, seven days a week, and I found a time. I had a different time Monday through Friday than I did Saturdays and Sundays, but I always found at least a half hour, but usually an hour or even longer to write every single day. And the thing is, when you write every single day, whether you write 500 words or 1,000 words, if you write 1,000 words every day for three months, you will have a very long novel. Regardless, it might not be a very good novel, but you'll have something. It's impossible to write every single day on something, not to eventually finish it. And so I found by writing every day, I was very productive. I was writing books. I was getting things done. I was educating myself in the process. So the achievement of writing a book is not just the decision, hey, I'm going to write a book, because lots of people have that decision. It's the dedication that this is not a hobby. This is something I'm going to take as seriously as I would any other aspect of my life that I want to be successful in. And making that decision to do that is why I was able to become pretty successful pretty quickly. I had a, did not take a long time for me to find an agent and a book contract. It all came pretty quick. One of those reasons is because I'd been a professional advertising writer for many years. Why so I knew how to write. It wasn't like I was starting from scratch but also dedicating myself every day to producing work. It's made me better. It made me become what I am. And I still write every day, seven days a week. In the 10 years since I first made the decision I was going to write, I've probably missed maybe 10 days in 10 years uh, writing. I still try to write every single day. Wow, that, that's real dedication. I, I try to write most every day, uh, but I don't know that I could make that claim of only missing 10 days in, in 10 years. It'd probably be a bit higher. <laughs> I don't know if I could yeah, make that claim in the morning, miss, you know. missing only 10 days in one year. <laughs> you know, the patients and the families annoy that are bringing my laptop with me, and I say, you guys have to go out uh, for lunch. I can't go with you. I put my hour in. Uh, but, you know, I find, again, if I find if I miss a day, it's easy to miss multiple days. So if I don't let myself skip a day, then I know I'll be productive and I know I'll get my work done. So how do you know if you've had a productive day? What makes you what makes you feel that yes, that was a good morning, my my hour writing? Do you have a word count you strive for or a scene, a chapter? I generally try to write if I'm in it depends on where in the process I'm in the book, because if I don't have an idea, my productive day might be just thinking of a couple of plot points in a book. If I'm in a first draft stage, a a great day, maybe writing a chapter. If I'm in a revision stage, it might be revising 10 pages or 20 pages. So I have different expectations uh, depending on where I am in a book, but I generally have expectations. And sometimes that takes a half hour. Sometimes it takes more than that. I try to balance my time so I don't get my work done in my allotted amount of time for the day. I will come back and, and work later. My schedule is pretty tight, so I don't have a whole lot of flexibility, but I can go to bed later or I can take less time watching a, you know, a Netflix movie or something. So I can find, if I really, really want to, I could usually find the time. But what's successful really depends on what I am con 
currently doing and what the process is uh, on the book. And then how about uh, with the with 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 your okay? So the the hour can be writing, revising, whatever it is that needs to be done. Does research count? It it, it would generally do a lot of most of my books are fiction and most of my books are kind of zany um, or certainly you're at least based on experiences that are similar to what I've had. So I don't do historical fiction, for example. Um, I So my books tend to not need a lot of research. And if I'm writing something and I will need to know some information for that scene or for that dialogue or for a character's backstory. Um, I will do the research and yes, I would consider that part of part of that time. How about uh, your reading habits? Do you, are you a, a must read every day or? I certainly read every day. I, I think all authors love to read. They love, you know, I love the written word, whether I'm writing it or, or someone else is writing it. And I think for any author, reading is a critical component and I, i'll use the analogy of of anyone who is passionate about something probably enjoys doing as much as they do listening or watching if you love to dance you probably really enjoy watching dancers and you don't just enjoy it from a entertainment perspective you enjoy learning you see the moves they make and you want to emulate those moves that inspire you to become a better dancer or if you're a musician you probably listen to a lot of music and maybe you want to play uh the same chords that you're hearing or maybe you want to try that song or maybe inspires you to create your own song or your own type of music or your own type of phrasing and the same thing with at least with me when i read things i read things for entertainment value certainly but i also pick up things I get scared. I go, wow, how did that writer do that? I would love to to how they scared people. Or how do they make me, like Robert, you mentioned you, you cry. You know, how did that writer make me cry? Well, what did they do? What was the scene they did leading up to that? How did they make that scene compelling? It was sad. And then when I'm own writing, maybe I will take some of those hints with me. Um, I think all artists borrow from other artists. And I'm certainly not shy to admit that a lot of my books are inspired by certain things or certain phrasings or certain elements that other authors use. And if I wasn't reading constantly, I couldn't bring those things to my own reading. So I love writing myself. I love reading what other people have written, not only for just the joy of reading, but for the aspects of helping me in my own writing. Makes sense. So if you can see other writers doing things well, uh, or in some cases not so well, then that gives you an idea of what you need to do to, uh, to, to make better your own work, right? For sure. And, you know, it's, as, as a writer, you know, there are certain writers whose work touches me more, maybe more similar to my style, or writers that I am impressed with, or writers that go, wow, I could never write something like that. And it amazes you, just like anyone, if you see someone doing something that you didn't think, wow, that's above what I could do, or just different from what I can do, then that really helps you internalize your own writing and helps you understand where you're coming from as well. So there's a lot of things that, as a writer, I learn from other writers, and that uh, can improve uh, me as, as an artist in, in all kinds of different ways. 
want to dig in here to the Curse of the Were Penguin, because uh, I've got lots of questions for you about this book. Uh, but I did want to ask you just one more question about just you, because uh, you're the only you're the only author I can think of to ask this. And what is the deal with the hat? Because uh, every author photo I've ever seen of you, except I think the first photo from Middle Grade Ninja when you're when Zachary Ruthless came out forever ago, uh, you've got your hat on. Every time I see you at a, a conference or an event, you're walking around with the hat. So what's the deal with the author hat? So there's actually a, a story behind it. So as an author, especially as an up-and-coming author, you get invited to signings. And some of these author signings are catalog calls where like 30 authors are crammed into a room and you're all trying to get noticed and get your book sold and signed. And usually at these events, there'll be one or two headliners and there'll be you know, 100 people uh, deep for the headliners autograph. And the other 30 authors are staring, standing around with no one visiting you and you're looking jealously at that headliner and you're looking at your neighbor next to you and commiserating and feeling uh, a little unpopular. So I was early on, I had a pen name, uh, one of my pen names. I was invited to go to one of these cattle call signings under the my pen name. And for my pen name, I was just using a silhouette of someone with a big mustache and a, and a, and a hat. I thought I should go as that character, not as, as myself. So I went to, I got a, a hat uh, that fit uh, that the kind of silhouette. I went to a costume store and I bought a big uh, handlebar mustache, the, the, the good kind, the kind that you have mustache glue on, so it would look, you know, somewhat <laughs> official. And I had an old black had as a Halloween still had. And I wore this and I went and I talked in a really weird, like, I, I can't do voices well. I did a, like a high-pitched British accent that went in and out. It was a disaster. <laughs> but I sat in on this thing and I was the one with a hundred people, probably because I was talking so weird and looked so odd. And I could see everyone else was staring at me jealous. All of a sudden I was the headliner and who the heck knew who I was because I had a book that no one had known and had just come out. So after but one of the problems was the the mustache kept on falling off. It was it was so hot. I was wearing a hat and a heavy trench coat and those mustaches <laughs> and mustaches were falling off with sweat. So I had one hand holding up the mustache and another hand signing books and dripping sweat. It was a miserable experience other than the fact that I had a very popular uh, table. And so, and I had thought to myself, wow, this was, I should, for, for Alan Woodrow signings, I need to do something as cool as that. But again, because I was so hot and miserable, I wasn't going to do the mustache or the trench coat, but I could do the hat. And in advertising, it's all about marketing. It's having an identifiable uh, persona. So I quickly embraced the idea of a hat. And I now yeah, wear a hat every time I'm at an author function. But for my very first book, I hadn't discovered the hat yet. Uh, and then for the rest of my life, I don't wear a hat. So if you see me wearing the hat, I'm probably an officially uh, an author at a signing or a podcast or at a school visit, uh, but just sitting around the house, uh, generally I'm not wearing a hat. So is that kind of like, uh, oh, well, this is a very middle grade show to bring up, but is that kind of like uh, Breaking Bad, Walter White's got the hat that he puts on and becomes Heisenberg. When you put the hat on, do you become Alan Woodrow, author, here to talk author stuff? Uh, it does not have a, um, a transfiguration property. So <laughs> I put on the hat, I don't really act much differently than, uh, unlike my, my original pen name when I had 
had a whole different persona, um, I don't become uh, a ruthless, uh, you know, drug dealer like a dad, and I don't uh, uh, become anyone other than myself. No, that would be uh, it. Would be an odd thing to do on the side of writing children's <laughs> books. <laughs> yeah, don't mesh well uh, those two occupations. With the background in advertising, I definitely want to talk with you more about how that influences you as with your author career and how that influences you in book marketing. But I want to tease it. I want to say, hey, there are authors who are listening and you want marketing advice and advertising advice. We're absolutely going to talk with Alan about it. But first, we're going to talk about The Curse of the Were Penguin. I love this book. This absolutely cracked me up. Uh, so let's start here and we'll, we'll circle back for the rest of it. Um, but if you would, I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books. Uh, so if you would just give esteemed audience a bit of a summary of what is The Curse of the Were Penguin all about. Well, Bolt Waddle is a 12-year-old orphan who has always wanted family, but unfortunately, as a 12-year-old orphan, old, uh, to be as an orphan, his future opportunities did not look great until he is surprisingly adopted by a mysterious baron in the faraway country of Bulgaria. Bolt excitedly goes to this faraway country, only to discover that things are not quite as awesome as he thought because the baron is, turns into a evil penguin at midnight. And when he bites Bolt, Bolt has only three days to reverse the curse or be a were-penguin for eternity. So it's a, it's a true story uh, based loosely on, uh, on, on facts. Um, but, you know, I took some licenses here and there. I mean, that's part from the part about the were-penguin, <laughs> which obviously right. is 100% true. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, you know, werewolves get all the, uh, all the press. Uh, where aardvarks get very little attention, where termites, probably because they're so small, no one really pays attention to. Again, where penguins, unless you're living in those pockets of the world where penguins frequent and plunder and loot fisheries, uh, you probably don't know that much about where penguins uh, either. But yeah, there's a whole a whole litany of where uh, creatures, um, but uh, in the United States, certainly, and in Western civilization, where wolves seem to get all the attention, but I don't know if that's justified. Why is it um, just right to it? This is almost akin to asking a writer, uh, where do you get your ideas? Which I know is a terrible question because most authors don't know that it's, it's got to come. Um, but where, why was it, why was a were penguin uh, ideal for you out of all those were creatures that you could have written a book about? What, what made you settle on a were penguin? Yeah, and that's going to be a tough one because I, I'm not sure. I very first sat down, it was a were aardvark. But I only wrote like a page of, of that, and I didn't like the wear aardvark. And I think I was watching Happy Feet and maybe March of the Penguins around that time. And penguins are joyful, happy creatures that people love. So if you're going to mix a beloved creature that people don't consider to be dangerous, uh, certainly you know carnivorous, uh, with a monster, then penguins are a great option. You could do, you know, you could do a were panda bear, perhaps. You could, there's a few other animals, a were kitten, but cats can be dangerous. So kittens, you know, outgrow them. So there's not that many uh, really awesome animals to choose from, but a were penguin just seemed perfect. Also, there are some lessons, uh, morals, I say, I would say in the book about the importance of family. Uh, penguins are one of the unique creatures where a, a mother and a father will mate for life. 
and have a chick together and take turns, take share of the care of that chick and take turns sitting on that egg. So it also worked really well for developing a, a horror story, but also one with heart. Yeah, no, it's, uh, in that sense, it's a perfect creature because immediately just within the title, it gives you a sense of the type of book that you're going to get. There's, there's going to be a humorous book and there's, there's a laugh every page uh, almost throughout, but there are some elements from classic uh, horror stories that are kind of turned on their head. And it's, it's never, it's never too scary because it, at the end of the day, one, it's, it's humorous throughout, but two, it's, it's a where penguin. I, I would be hard pressed to imagine the child that would be terrified of the, <laughs> of the where penguin. Maybe, maybe they're out there. Maybe, maybe you're getting letters from their parents. <laughs> uh, no, Dear no, Mr. No, Ryder, my not child yet. didn't sleep last night. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, I, I, I haven't gotten any, any complaints. Any complaints yet on uh, making the book too scary? Because that was certainly something I was aware of, though. I I had some scenes that were a little more, uh, you know, graphic. Um, but I wanted to avoid them again, knowing my audience. Um, you wouldn't want to make anything too disturbing. But then again, if you make it too soft, there's no tension. So that was uh, one of the challenges with writing a book: is writing a horror story that was scary-ish, but not. So so frightening that uh, the audience might get nightmares dreaming of penguins attacking them and, and stealing their fish from their freezer or, or whatever uh, horrors they could imagine that penguins might do to them. I was looking, there's several good examples. One that struck me is uh, without, without spoiling, uh, there is a gang of bandits that's introduced relatively early in the story. Uh, and, and they show up and they're they're planning to do some kidnapping and some ransoming. I won't say who they're planning to kidnap, uh, but they, they undercut that because that's a source of income, but they also hold a bake sale. And so right away you go, ah, okay, well, these, these bandits probably aren't too tremendously dangerous if they're also selling baked goods. We'll, we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the pumpkin strudel actually was, is probably their biggest seller. Not that that's necessarily important for the book, but uh, uh, yeah, they're... Uh, their baking skills are, uh, are are quite adept. We're, uh, there's a lot of uh, fun names within the story, most notably the the uh, the main character, uh, Bull Waddle, because um, you know he's, he's at least for the a portion of the story, one of his, his go-to action is to run away. So Bolt, perfect name. Uh, where um, not all the names are are, are uh, so odd point, uh, but where where do you typically how do you yeah how do you come up with your names how do you decide what to name the characters? So there's a variety of of things. And for example, in the Curse of the Werepenguin, when you specifically meant, mentioned Bolt, Bolt is short for Humboldt, and Humboldt is a species of penguin. So when I was looking to name him, I was reading up on penguins. Uh, a lot of times my characters might have a name that's derived from real word or derived from the of a, of a, uh, of a translation of a foreign uh, language that means that word. And a humble penguin being a type of penguin, uh, that of all the names of the penguins seemed like uh, the one that fit the character most. And of course, Bolt can be used from Humboldt. And I knew that I wanted a character not who was bold, and fearless, and though thus becomes a penguin, is able to fight a, people because he's so naturally brave. But uh, on the other side, on the contrary, I wanted a, a character who was who was scared, who had to overcome not only 
this horrible creature, but his own internal fears. Um, so someone who ran away from danger and the fact that Humboldt could be shortened to Bolt, all of this worked really well together. But uh, um, I found the name Humboldt as a species of penguin uh, before um, I realized that it could be shortened uh, to Bolt, which all of this worked really well. And, and other characters, again, it depends uh, on the character. Some people uh, uh, may be uh, inspired uh, by other names. As a, uh, the head of the bandit clan is Vigilando, who uh, his name is inspired from um, a name uh, from a, 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 a different book. I don't think anyone ever would realize that, that, that connection, but uh, lots of things uh, come from, from just random things in my head that make sense to me, but uh, not always easy to follow those threads. And um, who uh, who is the ideal reader for this story? Well, the ideal reader is someone who's really rich and wants to buy a thousand copies of the book. <laughs> I think if I can get ten people to buy a thousand copies each, I, I, I'm 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 done. Uh, but assuming and that no one wants a thousand any copies, podcasters that you are interviewed by, <laughs> that's, that's that's my goal. Right. Um, one person, a million copies, buys them all. I'll retire. Um, <laughs> assuming that doesn't happen, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, you know, as we've mentioned, it's a middle grade book, which means, you know, eight to 12 to 13 years old is the ideal audience. But, but really, when I write books, I write them books that make me happy and that I like. And I think anyone who at any age would enjoy it. So you don't have to be a nine year old boy. You can be a, you know, someone my age and still laugh and still enjoy the book. So yeah, the ideal age, you know, that third through seventh, eighth grade uh, age group, but I wouldn't say that anyone uh, would be too old uh, to, to laugh at the humor. You know, a great example, and one of the greatest books is, is Princess Bride, which you see the movie and maybe it's a kid movie, but it's rich and it's laughing anyone at any age can, can enjoy it. So uh, I hate to compare my book with a classic. Uh, certainly lots of a book that is good for kids and there's lots of great books for kids that are also great for adults. So when I write, I hope that my books can strike a chord uh, at, with you no matter, no matter where you're at in the, and uh, whether you're in school or, or out. Well, they can uh, slap this on the cover of the paperback if they want. Princess Bride is garbage compared to the Curse of the Were Penguin. Rob Kent, middle grade ninja. Put that right up front. <laughs> I, I, I missed that. So, so thank you. That's, uh, uh, that's high praise. Certainly for me, if I'm looking at the pantheon of, uh, of, of great humorous children's books, Princess Bride is you know, near the top. Well, what it, uh, while I'm thinking about it, I do want to ask you about some of the blurbs here that are on your cover, because you've got, you know, you've got the, the best of the best on here. You've got Chris Grabenstein, you've got Chris Rylander, you've got Adam Rex. Uh, and then my, my favorite is this quote from uh, uh, Baron Chordata, uh, who says, this book is full of lies and slander. Do not repeat it or I will hang you from a flagpole by your armpit hairs and raise you up and down for a week. Well, he would think that, wouldn't he? <laughs> For those who, who are uninitiated, Baron uh, Chateau uh, is a character within the story. So it's wonderful that he's also got his blurb on there. Uh, but for the, the others, how did you go about getting such uh, wonderful blurbs from such uh, amazing authors? It's amazing what blackmail 
we'll give you. And just, <laughs> fine. You can dig up all kinds of dirt on people. Use that. And all of a sudden, they're sending you money. They're writing blurbs for your books. It's, it's pretty amazing what uh, a little internet research can do. No, um, you know, I, I can't take credit for finding those blurbs. My publisher, my agent uh, reached out to people they knew who they thought would enjoy reading the book. And they shared an early version of my book with these uh, awesome writers to get, and they volunteered to write blurbs for the book. But um, I didn't have any personal um, involvement uh, in that. I wish I did. That would have had, uh, you know, all kinds of different people also joining the fray. I had a couple of blurbs early on. I had one from uh, Richard Adams, uh, the author of Watership Down, and I had one from my buddy Mike Mullen, uh, the author of Ashfall. Uh, and then, like, after that, I asked a couple of other authors, and they just looked at me like I had just committed the most egregious sin. Like, ah, oh, you made it dirty. Why would you ask me that? And, uh, that, and then after that, I, I never asked anybody again. I said, nope, there, there's no blurb that's worth that feeling of, <laughs> of being that idiot having asked for it. So when I see a great blurb, I'm always curious. Did you did you have to did you have to have that in person uh, contact and, and ask him real nice from the bottom of your heart? But it sounds like you were you were spared that. You just were the fortunate recipient of uh, of an outstanding publisher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In this case, that's true. Let's um, talk. Uh, had some other questions just about the story. Um, Trying to think where the best spot to decide would be. Uh, but one thing I wanted to ask you about was the uh, opening and closing, again, without without spoiling. Uh, it opens very um, classic horror story. We've got uh, characters that are not, uh, so far as we know, main characters within the story. We've got a gentleman who's come to, to visit the zoo and, well, on some other purpose, it's, it's St. Ave Zoo, and he's a uh, first-person narrator who's being told both stories. So why... Um, at what point did you make that decision on day one when you started the story, or was that afterward, or somewhere in the middle? How did that come to be, and why is this third uh, first-person perspective that's not Bolt or yeah, that's not that's not our our protagonist? Why is that the best spot to start a, a story like this? That was actually the uh, that was not a a revision change. That was the very first thing I wrote was was that narrator. So that was part of my vision of the end. The entire time, and there were some plot points for that. The, the narrator himself is not necessarily a a, a, a protagonist, or, or in this first book, but he, he will come into play. Uh, there's three books, and they come into play later in the series. Um, there was lots of, of, of different reasons, but I really am a fan of books where there's a narrator kind of inserts them into the narrative, whether it's Lemony Snicket. Obviously, he plays a much bigger role in those books and, and there's a, a narrator at the beginning and end of the book. But I'm a big fan of books where a narrator is inserted a little bit as personality comes into the book and, and maybe influences uh, the choices of the storytelling. Um, but the mystery of who this uh, person is and how he knows the story uh, is something that I plan to reveal eventually. Uh, I didn't know necessarily there'd be a sequels to this book when I wrote it. I did have a longer vision in my head, um, but didn't know how to be fortunate enough to tell that story. So he was inserted to some extent uh, as a hope he'll come into play later, but uh, really just a, a narrative device 
that I felt really worked well to kind of intrigue uh, the readers and kind of play off uh, some ideas I might have later. So I know, obviously, at the back of the book, we're promised Revenge of the Were Penguin is coming soon. So the, the publisher definitely owes us that. You promised <laughs> it's in here. Uh, at what point in the process did you know that, yes, indeed, there were going to be sequels, so you had some room to breathe and, and expand your story? So it wasn't until after this first book was written and the publisher had agreed to to release it that they came they came to me and they said, Alan, um, we would love to continue the Where Penguin story. Do you have any ideas of where this could go? And my answer was, I definitely do. In fact, I'm so glad you asked because I have very, uh, you know, I have kind of a, a whole whole sequence of events in, in my head um, that will come into play. So that's awesome that I can tell my entire story. So at that point, I began developing uh, that structure around those ideas more uh, more carefully. Um, but it really didn't uh, come into uh, solid fruition uh, until much closer to the, uh, public, the uh, publication date uh, of the book, maybe maybe six to eight months before the book uh, was going to be released, which was just released a few weeks ago, uh, did uh, that all come into play. And when uh, when can uh, esteemed audience look forward to purchasing their copy of Revenge of the Were Penguin? Revenge of the Were Penguin will be out next summer. I don't think there is a release date. August 2020 right now is the target month. Um, but again, not a date specifically has been set in stone. Uh, then again, there'll be a third book, uh, likely about a year later after that. Gotcha. So Curse of the Three Penguin. <laughs> or some, I assume we're not able to reveal the title here at this point. That's uh, so the third book now. Now that's, uh, um, you know, I do have a title for it, but uh, it's not in stone yet. Gotcha. Uh, and then, so um, when you're when you're when you're writing a book, do you always have some idea in the back of your mind that there could be a sequel, and then you're comfortable just walking away after the first if, for some reason, a sequel is not warranted, or is it just some books have sequels and others don't? General, this it depends on the book. Not all the books that I write have obvious sequels. Usually, when you write something, you start embracing the characters and you envision what their bigger life beyond this book. What have they done after chapter, after last chapter is done, after it says the end, what do they do next? I think that's part of anyone's uh, thought process. You love the people you're writing about and you become, it feel real, it feel like family. So you, you think about their journey beyond the pages of the book. And sometimes that journey is compelling enough that, wow, that could be a story. That is something that I would love to share. And sometimes that journey is really uninteresting and wouldn't lend itself uh, to a book. But I think most of my characters, I know what happens to them after the uh, final chapter is done. It's just a matter of, do I have the opportunity or to tell that story? And does anyone want to know that story? Because if all they did after the book ended was uh, have lunch the next day. Uh, that's not going to be necessarily a compelling uh, narrative. Have lunch, take a nap, call it a day. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then um, this is a, a very funny book just throughout. Um, what What is the secret for writing humor for kids? Or for any for anybody? 
Because I yeah, laugh. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's, that's something that I have been asked before and that I cannot answer. I try to write things that I don't think are funny, and I can't. I always have to throw in a joke. I have to take a, a scant view of the scene and make it more fun. Every time I try to write something that's serious to me, it, it doesn't come across as good, then I just have to throw in some jokes. So I think just my writing style lends itself to humor, even if I don't intend at the start uh, to add humor to it. Um, and then what makes me laugh doesn't necessarily make you laugh, but hopefully it does. I, I think I have a fairly uh, universal uh, sense of humor. So if I think something's funny, I think generally speaking, most people find it funny too. Um, but really I write to make myself giggle. And uh, even if I'm not giggling out loud, right? I'm giggling to myself. Uh, unlike you, Mr. Narcissist, who's laughing a lot uproariously when he's writing, I'm chuckling inside. But uh, my writing really has to make me smile or it just comes across to me as not finished. Yeah, nope, that's me. Brilliant. Ah, you've done it again. <laughs> There's a kind of half deranged moment. If anybody's seen the, the newest version of Murder on the Orient Express where Kenneth Branagh is playing Hercule Perot, uh, and he they're 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 playing up his love of Charles Dickens, but they when they when you see him reading, he's on his bunk and he's got the book and he's just laughing as loud as he possibly can, annoying the other passengers in the train and yelling out, Oh Mr. Dickens and that, that that's how I like to imagine myself when I'm reading my own books. <laughs> So with uh, with humor, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit like asking, I don't know, how how do you do magic? I, I don't know. You you just do it past a certain point. Um, but do you find that the, the better jokes come in the revision after you've got something on on paper, a, a draft or two? Uh, for for sure. Um, when I go back and I find scenes to be not very compelling or interesting, I I'll throw in a joke. You know, back in grade school. I was a kid who thought of a really funny comeback in class 30 seconds after it would have been appropriate to yell it out. So the teacher says something, I got nothing. 10 seconds later, I think of a great comeback, but that time the teacher's already into algebra and I've lost my opportunity. So the great thing about writing books is that 30 seconds is perfectly fine. No one's rushing me to tell a joke. Usually I'll write a scene and I go back to it in revision and I'll think of all these funny things while I'm reading what I wrote uh, that I can add to it, but my first drafts are usually not, first of all, they're not very well written. I do not write first drafts well. It takes me multiple drafts to make my writing not, not be horrible. Uh, but also, as I'm adding layers, uh, generally the jokes just kind of come. How many, uh, how many drafts are you typically looking at for a given project now that you're you know, 30 books in uh, and the Alan Woodrow? Um, Anywhere from eight to, to 12, I guess. My very first books were about 30. Uh, my very first book, I think there was 30 plus, 35 uh, revisions that I did. And now I can get an under 10 if I'm really good, but it kind of depends on the first draft. I've written some first drafts I think are pretty good. So then they still need seven or eight revisions. And other times I write a draft I don't think is any good at all and uh, might need a few 
more go-arounds. But when I say a revision, it's hard to necessarily say what constitutes a revision because I save you know, old drafts. Sometimes a revision is an entire work through from beginning to end. Sometimes a revision might be uh, changing one character. Maybe I don't like that character anymore. I want to take him out or maybe I want to give her some different personality traits. Um, so the level of rewriting for each draft changes dramatically. And I have no real way of quantitating uh, exactly how much rewriting means a, a, uh, a manuscript has been revised because it's all over the place. So if we're talking, you know, 10, 12 anymore, uh, does that include the drafts that then after you've submitted to um, your, your agent and the publisher? Does that include I'm, I'm drafts or is that just you before you, you open the door for other people to come in? There's me before I open the door for other people to come in. Usually there'll be two drafts uh, after that. Uh, sometimes just one. It, it sort of depends. But two is, is uh, I think once I had three uh, and I just, but generally speaking, two, the first one being somewhat significant, there'll be a bunch of different plot points and things that the, uh, the, the editor discovers that really things will enhance the, the story that maybe I hadn't considered. Um, and often I agree with those and that might alter things um, in different places too. Uh, then after that, usually the changes are fairly superficial. Uh, there'll be a, uh, another round later on with a, uh, copy editing, I mean, someone says proofread it. Um, you know, my grammar is not 100% uh, perfect. I don't, I need spell check or a lot of my words are misspelled. And so, you know, the copy editing phase is awesome for me because people can find a lot of small little things that I, that I, that I didn't notice. Even if I spend, you know, hours pouring over the page to find every, try to find every single little mistake, there'll still be uh, mistakes in there. Uh, I think the human brain kind of works that way. Once you make one mistake, it kind of glosses over that mistake in future revisions versus a fresh pair of eyes that can immediately spot some things that you might never be able to spot no matter how many times you look at the, uh, at the manuscript. And then are you a uh, plotter or a pantser? Do you sit down and, and draft out your plot points? How much planning do you do before you get started? I am a significant plotter. Um, and that goes back to when I first started to, to write and made that decision to become a writer. I had a full-time job and as an advertising writer, and I only had a small pocket of time uh, during the day. Uh, my kids were little, so they would go to bed by 8.30, 9 o'clock, and I would go to bed by 11. So I had for when they went to bed and when I went to bed to write. And I discovered pretty quickly that if I didn't sit down and know exactly what I wanted to write that day, I would be staring at my computer screen for almost the entire time, not doing anything productive. So finally, I think of an idea and I started thinking of the idea and then it was time to go to bed. So I knew immediately I needed to be disciplined and know exactly what I was going to write before I sat down so that I could be productive and use that time. So my very first book, after trying not to, I caved in and plotted the whole thing. And I found writing the book went so much faster, so much better, so much smoother. And to this day, now I can't sit down and write anything without having plotted the entire book. My, 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 my plots are, are, are long. I'll have a 50 page outline of my book before I sit down and write it. And that 
50 pages might include snippets of dialogue. It might include snippets of descriptions. So as I'm writing the, 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 the overview, I will have ideas for jokes or other things, and I'll kind of put them in. So that's why it's 50 pages long. Um, but uh, without that, without that phase, I would just be staring at my computer like a deer with headlights, not getting anything done. 50 pages, that's almost like a, like a first draft, almost, right? Yeah, I don't consider when I when I when I mentioned my my revisions, I don't consider a revision because it's not written in a in a narrative form. There's no uh, point of view uh, to it. Um, but I guess you could kind of consider it one. As I write the novel, certain things might change from the outline. Of course, there may be some things I didn't notice. The characters bring on their own personality and flaws. There's something that sounded good in the one sentence outline, but now that I'm writing a page about it it doesn't quite make sense so the outline is a living outline but when i make a change in the manuscript i usually will go back and make it on the outline because often these things will have an avalanche effect right if i make one change on one page that may affect how characters react and change going forward so i don't want to have a big dilemma when i'm writing about wait how can I write this? This made no sense with the change over there. So the outline is constantly being revised as I think of new ideas. And how detailed are you getting? I mean, do you know where your chapter is going to begin and end? So you've got your, you know, your, if not your cliffhanger, your, your whatever it is, that's going to make sure esteemed uh, reader can't put your book down before they get to the next chapter. I, I do. I mean, yes, I know exactly where it's going to end. I know the title. Of every chapter, I've numbered the chapters, I've titled them. Um, again, the description could be two sentences. Description could be a page and a half. Most of my outlines are not 50 pages long. They have one or two have been. Usually they're around half that. Usually around 25 pages long. But still, a 25-page outline for a 300-page book is a fairly uh, considerable template to be used to write the book going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I assume that comes in handy for revision as well. Then if you're updating the outline as you go and you're, and you're trying to figure out where you're at in the back of the book and you want to revise something, if you've got this, that 25 page document where you can go and you can see the entire macro of your, of your story, I assume that comes in handy throughout the process, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back and I'll revise the outline first and I'll color code it. So maybe uh, this round, uh, everything I'm changing from the first outline will be uh, in red or in blue. So then when I go back to that chapter, I can see, okay, these things are changing structurally in this chapter. Now I'm going to write that chapter, and I'm going to address those elements and keep the other elements uh, where they are. I will then do a complete read through the entire manuscript to make sure that changes are all kind of working together. But that is a big time saver and allows me to revise, I think, faster than some other people might revise because it's all fairly organized. Um, you know, there's always the drawback in that one of the one of the great things about writing is the sense of discovery. You're writing new things and you're discovering it with the reader. When you outline, that sense of discovery is somewhat removed, which makes the actual writing process a little less fun. Again, but, uh, that's one of the reasons why I can bring these things to life. I can add humor, I can add jokes, I can add all these filler things and still have that sense of discovery and that sense of newness and that sense of, of interest that 
propels me to continue to want to be involved in rewriting the book and, and making all those extra revisions. Makes sense. I like to outline as I go. So after I finish a chapter, I'll make sure I update my outline and I'll have like what I call a grocery list where I've got these plot points I want to make sure I hit. And I usually know my ending, but I did find that the one time I wrote a really detailed outline, like we're talking 30 plus pages, I wrote it all out ahead of time. I never actually wrote the book. So nope, <laughs> I, I wrote the story. It's good. <laughs> I love that outline. I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, so I can tell you a story that's exactly relevant to that. So I was in my early 20s and I was working for an advertising agency and I'd gone to Los Angeles to, to uh, we were filming some TV commercials and I was at the bar of the hotel by myself. I don't remember why the rest of the crew wasn't there. Maybe they all went to bed. I was, you know, again, 24. And I sat down at the bar and I was by myself and uh, struck a conversation with a gentleman who was next to me who was an author. And he had written a, a book that I'd heard of. Actually, I hadn't heard of the book, but I'd seen the movie the book was based on. And I told him at the time that, hey, I want, I, you know, wow, that's awesome that you're an author. I want to be an author someday. I didn't know it would take me so many years uh, from that point to actually become the author. Uh, but I asked, you know, I said, one of the problems is I keep on starting things and I never finish them. I start them, I lose my interest. And he said, I, I know exactly what you mean. I have some advice. When you have an idea, don't tell anyone that idea, any that idea until you've finished writing it. Because as soon as you tell someone your story, you've already told the story and all the passion of telling it for the first time is going to be gone. And I've taken that to heart. And no matter what I'm working on, I don't share anything about that story, about that book, until I'm completely done. So part of that is the same thing with revision. If I'm writing an outline, I've already told the story. It does take that excitement out of rewriting writing it the first time. So I certainly can understand where you're coming from. But I find that even by verbally telling that, that's an extra added stage that makes it even harder. So I don't mention anything about anything to anyone until I'm completely finished with it. But also the outline stage does, uh, to some extent, yeah, robs that, that newness, that energy that you get from telling from the very first time. Obviously, my next question is, what are you working on currently? <laughs> Can you tell us the details of the story? <laughs> I'm writing book three of the uh, Where Penguin trilogy. It's not done yet. So I'm in the middle of, uh, uh, middle of, of writing that. Again, it's outlined, you know, but... Um, Actually, usually my outlines are pretty good. And I was I was halfway through the manuscript and I realized the outline wasn't working. So I had to go back. I had to go back and redo the entire outline. It makes more sense now. And so I'm still in my very I guess, first draft of Where Penguin 3. And since I've got nine more drafts uh, to write at least, um, I'll be on where in the Where Penguin world uh, for quite a bit more time. I find uh, something similar. If I'm working on a, uh, usually if it's a horror story or if it's a brand new thing uh, in the middle grade world that I haven't done before, I don't want to tell anybody about it for that same reason that it's, I, I sometimes won't even tell Mrs. Kent what I'm, what I'm up to other than I wrote today. What'd you do? I, it was writing. How was your day, dear? <laughs> we'll, we'll just hurry that along. 
Um, but uh, at the moment, I'm I'm uh, still revising and working on on Banneker Bones three, so I'm a little bit more open to discussion because there's some things that you know third third book in the series. I know some things that are definitely going to happen. There's definitely going to be some action sequences. Banneker's Banneker and his buddy Ellicott are definitely going to uh, uh, have to uh, do some some battle with uh, some monsters because that's what they do. <laughs> so I'm a little more oh, comfortable talking about that. And my I'm family knows that, uh, better than. To- my family knows better than to ask me anything about my writing because I won't tell them. So they've learned long ago. Just leave me alone. Let me work in my uh, in, in my office, and we'll see you uh, when you get out of your, of your office. But they, they 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 know better than to ask. I don't know if they ever really cared. I can't remember them ever asking what I was working on. Um, but uh, if they did, they would have gotten a cold, icy glare. So uh, yeah, they're definitely uh, not asking me much about my writing anymore. It's taken about 15 years to finally get my wife to really honestly believe that if I'm at my computer, if I'm working, just stay out until the, I, I set a timer so she knows how long I have to go until it's done. And she can come in and ask me whatever she wanted to ask me. But early on in our marriage, she would uh, come in and I would play that clip from The Shining of you know Nicholson behind his typewriter. When you, when you come in here, you're distracting me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. This is, all work and uh, no play, make jacket, all boy, all over the place. <laughs> ah, writers, uh, what 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 joy we are to let to live with. <laughs> I don't know, is this, uh, Mrs. Woodrow a writer? Mrs. Woodrow, I'm sorry. I, are you sure? Uh, is your wife a writer? Um, no, she's uh, uh, an excellent proofreader. So I can guarantee every book I've written, she has read through and is a great critiquer and really gives me great insights. Uh, but she's actually, she's a, a graphic artist, a graphic designer by trade. So she has the artistic side and I have the, uh, the, the writing side um, down. So we do make a, a pretty good team. Now that we work together, we would no longer be married if we ever tried to really work together in any sort of capacity. It would, it would not be an uh, amiable situation but uh, uh, she does have an artistic bent. I know that there are famous couples, of course, who, who are each writers and they get along famously. Michael Grant and uh, uh, Catherine Applegate come to mind. Um, but um, by and large, I, I've got a group of writers, my, you know, my critique group, uh, and we often joke that none of us could be married to anyone else in the group because we've all got the spouse that has the non-writing job um, that you know, has the, the health insurance. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, that's that a challenge, a... certainly. You know, the, uh, yeah, the, uh, the health insurance, and when, especially when you have a family and kids, is, uh, is, is the challenge of any self-employed uh, you know, author or graphic designer. My wife's a self-employed graphic, graphic designer, so uh, you know, we don't necessarily have that resolved in our, in our household. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about advertising. We teased it, and I promise to get back to it. Uh, so how has your career in, in advertising influenced uh, not only your writing, but also the marketing of your writing? Yeah, as you, you mentioned that earlier, I was thinking, no, don't, don't say it. I don't have any great marketing tips. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I can advertise someone else all day long, but I get really shy and uh, withdrawn talking about my own work. It's that anti-narcissism. Uh, aspect of, of my personality that I'm not a, a natural born salesman. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, the, the, the huckster out there selling my wares. So I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant uh, to do all that. I'm 
though the one aspect of advertising that has really helped me with is the revision stage. Because when you're writing, say, a TV commercial and for um, you know, McDonald's, we'll say, right, you write a number, depending on where you are in the machine, you might be writing a bunch of different commercials. Show it to your boss. They narrow it down. Just to his boss, he or she narrows it down. Then they show it through to the client. The client then picks one out of whatever many they're being shown. Then the client shows it to their wife and their brother-in-law, their daughter. They all have comments too. And all of a sudden you get this mishmash of comments that are from 20 different people. And you need to try to still make a really great TV commercial despite all of this different noise. And so one of the things you wonder as an advertising writer is how to hone in on the comments that make sense and understand that these comments aren't necessarily in stone, but if they are sensing something needs to be changed, it means something is wrong with your script and it's up to you to change it in the best way possible. That might mean a whole different approach and a whole different way of thinking than any of these other 20 comments have, have come to your desk. But obviously if everyone's commenting on something, there's something not working with the line or with that idea. So one of the great aspects that I can bring to the table is that when I get noise, I get comments from my editor or from beta readers or from my wife or whoever's reading it, I can do a pretty good job of identifying those comments that I agree with, ignoring the comments that maybe don't make sense, but also understanding that even though the comments I don't agree with, they probably mean something structurally or something isn't quite working in that, that manuscript. And I can now identify that and try to come up with my own solution. So I think, you know, one of the things that I do really well is revise. It's one of the reasons why I revise so much. But also I revise really well based on feedback from other people. And it's all because of the training in advertising that has allowed me the opportunity and the, and the wisdom, I guess, uh, to cut through that clutter. Um, and discern the changes that work, the changes that don't work, and change differently the things that uh, aren't quite working with my own vision. Um, so that aspect of advertising has really influenced me and really, I think, has made me a much stronger writer. But the marketing part is really not something that I do great, which is surprising, right? Because that's what I've done for my most of my professional career is advertising. But... Uh, Writing TV commercials, then getting the TV commercial noticed and sold are not exactly the same thing. But imagine in terms of uh, revision, we've, this is me on the outside looking in, so I could be dead wrong. But I would imagine if you've got an idea for an ad and it's relatively well executed, but it's missing on a couple of things, you're getting those comments uh, where there needs to be some revision. It's not quite the same as uh, when you've got a book that you personally, you uh, wrote with this idea of this is the story of my heart and you want to take little slices of my heart, why would you do that? Whereas with an advertisement, it's a little bit more cut and dry. This either gets somebody interested in the product and well, hopefully primes them to buy or it doesn't, right? Well, with advertising, certainly if you're writing something, there's still pride of ownership. I still came up with the idea. I still wrote it maybe based on certain features or benefits or uh, strategies that maybe maybe I came up with or maybe someone else did, but I still had to create it from, from scratch. So there's still a pride and ownership, but there's the understanding in advertising that you're not the one paying for the Super Bowl commercial, right? Someone else is, so they've invested a lot of money and time and your bosses have, and the, and the agency you, you might be working for has a lot of 
people working with you, the account executives and the media planners and everyone who all coming together to make this thing work. And I understand that in writing as well, it's not just my voice. There's the the editor I'm working with. There's my agent who sold my idea. There's the publisher who's investing presumably money and time and effort uh, producing the books and and hiring maybe someone to do the cover art and getting trucks to deliver the the books to to, to the bookstore and to load the warehouses and uh, getting the people who are going to quote quotes on your on your book jacket. These are all people who are important to the process. It's not just me screaming uh, on a mountaintop. And it's a team that's going to work or a team that's not going to work. So working and writing and advertising makes me as surely made me understand that I'm not the solo writer living living uh, uh, in the jungle and uh, without anyone to talk to. And now, if I was a self-published author. Maybe I wouldn't feel that way, but I'm, I'm a traditionally published author who does rely on you know, the kindness of, of strangers, uh, so to speak. I understand that in order to make my book the best it can be, I welcome their feedback. I want them to help me and assist me and make my books uh, not only as good as they can be to reach the, broad, the greatest audience that, that they can reach. So, you know, I guess some authors uh, and some artists, you know, uh, I'm the best. I'm not going to change a word. I know best, but that's not my approach. And that's probably because of my background uh, that I do understand uh, all the all the efforts and all the hands on deck uh, that are needed, all the hats, so mm-hmm. to speak, uh, that are needed to uh, make something work. Uh, yeah, I've had a couple of different self-published authors on here, and even they, uh, you think that they, maybe they get to be the ones that are out in the jungle. Uh, and there, you know, I've written my poem about a leopard and it's perfect and it's beautiful. Uh, and if no one ever reads it, it still exists. Yay, art. Uh, and they're, they're probably out there, but the ones I've talked to, have, they still have to satisfy their readers. They still have their, their editors that they bring in that, 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 that uh, give them feedback and, and, and make life uh, difficult, but ultimately, you know, produce a better book. Um, so over the course of 30 books now, um, sooner or later, it has to have happened that an editor... Um, made a decision or wanted to make a decision that was not in line with your original artistic vision. How do you make your piece with something, especially if it's a drastic decision that really changes something significant about your work or have you gotten through 30 books and that hasn't happened? Well, there are two different answers to that. First of all, pick your battles. If there are things that you strongly believe in, stand by them. I'm not going to make a change just to make a change. If I feel something is really important, I will I will fight for keeping that. But also, as I mentioned with the advertising analogy, when someone makes a change, whether it's the client or the client's mother-in-law or, or your supervisor, that generally means this, they've identified something that's not working for them. So something's not working for them, there's a good chance there's a reason for it. And it's my job to figure out it's not working, why it's not working. And again, solving it in a way that does work with my vision and works with my idea, especially if it's a broader idea for, for Wear Penguin, for example, when I was them, maybe there was a change that someone wanted in book one, but I knew it was going to play into my broader vision in, in book three. That reader may not be aware of that, uh, but I am. So um, I do have the need to say no. Generally speaking, as long as there's a solid reason for saying no, people will respect that opinion. 
um, a solid reason for saying no, there's another solution out there that makes me happy and aligns with my vision, but also makes those people who aren't necessarily seeing my vision come into the life in the way I, I intend to uh, make them satisfied as well. Just thinking, yeah, there's a, right. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. <laughs> okay. uh, let me ask you another uh, question here about marketing, because you've got a book trailer uh, for uh, The Curse of the Were-Penguin. It's a little bit fun and, and, and horrifying, uh, in quotes, because you've got kids that are, ah, they're, they're, they're terrified that something's coming. And of course, it's a, it's a penguin. Um, who does the book trailer and how is that useful to you in the grand marketing strategy for your book? So I, I had as much to do with that book trailer as I did finding those blurbs for my cover of my book. Uh, so unfortunately, was was very little. They sent me a storyboard with the idea. Being in advertising, I'm very familiar with storyboards and videos because that's you know part of what I do for a living. Uh, so uh, I was very interested in what they were doing. Unfortunately, I really liked it. So there wasn't a whole lot of input that I gave to it other than, wow, this is really good. I actually had my, I had my own idea for a trailer I was going to maybe film myself, but theirs was better. So it, it uh, my, or at least theirs was uh, more professionally crafted. Uh, so there was no reason for me to uh, go out and limb and try to create my, my own. Um, and your second part of your question, which is how are these are used? And I, I wish I, you exactly. Um, uh, I see these. I think oh, this is really great. How can I use it? Um, certainly, I can link to it on my website, and I can link to it on on social media. Um, you'll have to ask someone closer to the uh, actual creation of at least of, of book trailers that are are developed and created by publishers to quite know the the range and of how of how they are used and how impactful they are or are not impactful uh, on book sales. But I think the trailer is awesome. So if you haven't seen it, you go to YouTube, uh, The Curse of the Winter Penguin trailer. Uh, you'll see it, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I'll put a, a link in the show notes. Uh, so check that out. Uh, it, it's what, it's all of a minute long, maybe less? Yeah, somewhere between a minute, maybe a minute and a half, I think less than a minute. I, I know when I create things, under a minute is sort of the key. People's attention tend to leave a little bit after that, which is why television commercials are 30 seconds long, sometimes 60, but very seldom longer than that. Uh, 60 seconds is about the limit of most people's attention spans, especially when seeing videos online. And even that, if you like a, watch a TikTok video, for example, this is a fraction of that amount of time. That is something for any advertising people that should happen to be watching or listening. Something I've enjoyed recently is there are there are commercials that get to their point within five seconds, and then we'll do something fun for the remainder of the commercial and generally acknowledge that you now have the ability to skip it. Like, hey, thanks for the five seconds. Now here's something. Here's somebody juggling. Here's something entertaining. If you want to continue, otherwise, you know, go on about your business. Enjoy the video. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but uh, when a video comes on and says skip ad as an option, the vast majority of people press skip ad. I don't have, a, uh, again, statistics to, uh, to give the exact numbers, but the goal is to make that first five seconds either tell your story or make it so compelling that you don't press skip ad. But even the most compelling video uh, is gonna be very difficult to get people's fingers off that skip ad button uh, when people have other things they, they wanna do with their lives, they have things they're gonna get to. 
where they do get me is if they've got, you know, a three or five minute commercial, something ridiculous like that. Uh, and I'm listening to a podcast. So I'm away from my computer uh, and they've come in in the middle of the podcast and I've got my hands literally in soapy water doing dishes or I'm busy doing something else. Uh, and I think, well, 30 seconds, this will be over. And it keeps going. I'm like, a minute, this had needs to be over soon. Two minutes. Ah, I'm going to have to dry my hands and actually physically walk to the computer. <laughs> so well played, advertisers. You probably get skipped by lots of people, but you catch me. I'm at your mercy. <laughs> I, I have no patience for any of that. So anything that's longer than 30, 60 seconds, I'm not, I'm not watching it unless it's something that's vital. Uh, instructional video on how to, you know, do something amazingly awesome that's going to change my life, but very, very seldom does it happen. I'm not watching it so much. It's just being held hostage <laughs> because I can't go on listening to the enjoyable thing that I was listening to. <laughs> well, let me uh, let me ask you this a question. I'm always uh, striving to get an answer to, and I know that uh, the, the the standard line is um, the thing about advertising is only 50% of it works, but nobody knows which 50% or some some uh, phrase along those lines. Uh, but do you have some idea of what has been the most effective marketing strategy for your books thus far? I do not have a, a great answer, but whatever they did for Harry Potter, I'd say that. <laughs> but uh, I, I, don't, I don't have any great insight into that. You just get a theme park designed after the uh, Were Penguin and you'll be in good shape. You know, as an author, I can, you know, going on school visits is a great way to get the word out. You're talking to, you know, a few hundred kids uh, at one time. You're not talking to tens of thousands of kids at one time, uh, but going on, on school visits, attending conferences where there may be large groups of of, uh, of other authors and, 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 and our audience at our, you know, as an author, a great mechanisms to use to to get a following and get the word out um but in terms of mass media advertising you know i am i am relying to a great extent uh on my publisher for that and how many uh, how often do you attend conferences two or three a year i would say um kind of depends usually around a book launch and maybe maybe a few more um but uh, I do do a lot of visits. You know, I try to do school visits throughout the school year, obviously, uh, not in the summer. Uh, but those could be, you know, those are a few times a month usually. So uh, it's a great way to uh, not only promote yourself, but to be around kids. My kids now grown up. They were, you know, my age, the book, perfect book writing age when I first started out. But that was 10 years ago. So they're 10 years older. They have graduated from other types of books that I am writing and it would just be weird to hang out at elementary schools by myself. So uh, the fact that people invite me to go to them, to actually talk to kids and to meet them and to, to, to see them and to hear what they have to say about my book and other things is, is a great resource to have. So not only do I enjoy the school visits from a, a marketing standpoint, but from a writing standpoint, an educational standpoint, I have to write books that reach that audience. Otherwise, it's hard to uh, reach that audience um, in any way um, versus, you know, 10 years ago when my, my kids had their friends over all the time. So it was much easier at that time to kind of put your head into the head of kids and remember what it was like when, when you were a kid yourself. 
So what, uh, when you're out of school visit, what kind of market research are you doing? Do you have some standard questions that you'll ask the kids about what they're reading or? No, not standard. I mean, there'll be a conversation, you know, what, what, what books, what's your favorite books? Oh, great. I read that too. What do you like about it? Uh, why don't you like this book? I mean, I might, I might ask a little bit, but usually they're, they're conversations. So um, the conversation may steer uh, in other directions. I'm not necessarily setting out to gather market research, uh, just that uh, relates to them as a, as a person and uh, try to hear how they say things and hear where they're coming from and, and, and remember what it was like to be that age myself, which can then help me be a better writer when I'm writing about uh, protagonists that, that share those same qualities. So you're not showing up with a with a clipboard and a pen and <laughs> sit down in a no, focus no, group no. situation. I maybe should. It's actually probably a pretty good idea, but I, but I haven't thought of it yet. Maybe uh, if, if I do, I'll make sure I mention you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Excuse no, me, Rob. Trying to tell that it's uh, use a clipboard. Went. I'm sorry that I'm asking all these questions, but Rob, talk to Rob Kent. He's the one that told me to ask these questions. I'm just doing what he told me to do. Now, stop me for not and answer these questions. <laughs> Question number one, what's your favorite Rob Kent novel? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what is the tip to for, for a successful school visit? How do you know if one's gone well? Anytime you're a public speaker i think you can read your audience if they're talking amongst themselves and rolling their eyes and bored kids can get bored pretty quickly you can tell if you've lost their interest maybe respectful and not speaking and not heckling you but uh they're shuffling my presentations have a lot of give and take uh audience response i'm asking them questions to keep them involved um and so if you ask a question in the room is uh you hear a pin drop you know you've lost them if they're everyone's raising in their hand uh because they're all eager to participate and ask the questions that are you know at the edge of their of their um lotus position seats uh to hear your next uh word then obviously you are resonating with them so you know, i make a lot of effort to make my presentations funny and engaging and and, and and not just me speaking but having them participate in some ways to keep their interest but i think you can tell pretty easily in any audience uh whether you have your audience's attention or if you've lost them. Yeah, except when it's a, a podcast and you can't see or hear the audience, then you just have to hope for the best. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that they're, they're in their car. Maybe they're stuck with the dishes and they want to turn it off, but they can't get their hands dried. Oh, <laughs> I've been there, friend. <laughs> well, how, what's, a, what's a good length for a school visit for a presentation? So my presentations tend to be between 45 and 50 minutes long. They could be an hour. Younger kids can't sit still that long. So maybe if I'm doing a kindergarten or first grade, I might limit it to a half hour. That includes question and answer. So if I'm doing 45 minutes, it might be 35 minutes for presentation and 10 minutes for questions and answer. Um, sometimes it might take longer. Again, it's some participation. So if people are really raising their hand, we could run out of time. It doesn't happen a lot of time. I'm usually pretty clock savvy. Uh, so I know when I can uh, stop asking questions and skip ahead uh, sort of thing. But uh, I would say I usually allow 45, 50 minutes for my typical school presentation. And then I'll make it three, uh, you know, during the school day, one for, you know, one grade, one for next grade one. Usually their auditorium fills, uh, filled 
uh, presentations. So I might do an entire grade, then an entire grade or two, then an entire grade or two, depending on, on the size of the school. Gotcha. So you could be there all day doing four or five presentations by the time you're done? I try not to do four or five. I try to limit it to three. Um, officially, you know, I, I can take, I might make exceptions. Um, I, it's sort of draining. I, I'm not a natural. I enjoy writing. When you're writing, you're by yourself in a room. There's no one around you. you don't talk a lot. So that's kind of my default. So actually being on display in front of people and entertaining them um, and being, uh, you know, verbose is not necessarily uh, my, my default. So it is, takes a lot of energy for me to do them. And so three is where I limit uh, if I can. I would not do five. Um, uh, if I, unless for the sun, there was some major uh, reason why I needed to, but I, I don't know what that would be. To sell more books. <laughs> well, I've done like an evening presentation in this to a school day. So if you add in the evening presentation, you know, at like a family night kind of event, um, then, then there'd be more than three presentations if you included that. And I assume when you come out, you don't say, hi, I'm Alan Woodrow. This is my book, Curse of the Were Penguin, chapter one, and just start reading. Um, what Are you coming out and are you talking specifically about your books or what What? What? What does your presentation typically entail? I have a, more than one presentation that I do, but generally speaking, it's about my life and my writing and how I've become a, a better writer. Hopefully they're they're, they're funny, but I, I use my own examples. I mentioned earlier in this conversation how I wanted to be a writer when I was in third grade. So I share, you know, one of my my first book I ever wrote in third grade, uh, which obviously is horrible, uh, and talk about how despite it being horrible and despite my fear of failure, which I already touched on here, um, was keeping me from pursuing this passion of mine, but I was able to to, to work past it and how important it is for anyone. Uh, even if you're, uh, you're in elementary school, um, whether you're scared of trying out for a school band or trying out for a sport team or, or trying to make a new friend because you're convinced that person will never want to be your friend or never want to uh, make that team or be good enough for anything, you can be like me and, and listen to that voice and, and put your dreams or what you want to do aside. Or you can ignore that voice. And look, it worked for me, right? I ignored that voice. Now I'm, I've written lots and lots of books. But if I continue to listen to the voice, I never would have uh, succeeded. So hopefully that lesson can, uh, in a perhaps a smaller, in a, you know, in a more, in a more narrowly focused way, can also help and encourage kids to uh, find their own dreams and pursue their own uh, loves as well. But I tell you what, uh, I appreciate you you being so verbose uh, and, and speaking with us today. I know I'm uh, wearing wearing you out, uh, and I don't want to do that. I never want to leave anybody after the end of one of these just going, "Oh my God, why did I ever agree to go on that podcast? I'm 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 so tired and exhausted now. What am I going to do with the rest of my day aside from maybe sleep?" <laughs> so let me. I've got two more questions for you, and we'll call it a day. Does that sound fair? That sounds great. So. First question I have to ask, because it wouldn't be the Middle Grade Ninja podcast if I didn't. Alan Woodrow, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? I've never seen a flying saucer that I'm aware of. Um, I do believe they exist, but I'm agnostic on that. So I've never seen one. So I think they likely exist. 
but I can't say definitively I believe in them or not. If you told me that you'd seen a flying saucer and convinced it was, I'd likely believe you. But uh, um, not having done it myself or known anyone personally who has seen a flying saucer, it's still a little bit of a stretch for me. I have not seen one personally. I did have an aunt who saw one. And it was always sort of me because she was a uh, science teacher uh, and she uh, was was very strict and she'd seen it uh, with um, with uh, her daughter and a couple of cousins. And I suspect that if she had seen it just uh, on her own, she never would have told anybody. She just shut up about it and, and blocked out that memory and it never happened. But because there were witnesses, she had to acknowledge that, yes, we saw this thing fly up and down the street. And she'd always just get this look on her eye or just kind of roll her eyes and and be just generally disgruntled when it would come up. Uh, and she was the aunt that yeah. always gave books for Christmas. I'm sorry. Now, I wasn't, I've never seen a flying saucer, but I was abducted for three years by aliens. I'm not sure if that counts. <laughs> I never saw the exterior of the ship. So I was kind of in a cage for most of that, but uh, until I escaped. So I'm not sure if that really answered your question, but, uh, um, you know, I might have dreamt it, but I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> Did they tell you the secret of the universe while you were there? <laughs> nope, no time for sharing wisdom. It's just three years of probing, and then you're out. <laughs> right. uh, then, uh, <laughs> to turn us back to terrestrial matters, my, my next question for you, Alan, is if there was some bit of advice that somebody could have said to you early in your career that would have made easier your path, that would have smoothed things over for all the authors uh, who are listening, what's, what would that advice have been, and what would you like them to take away from this? Well, this isn't going to answer that correctly, uh, exactly because I had a pretty, frankly, a fully, pretty easy path, path once I decided I was going to become a writer. Uh, it didn't take me that long to uh, sell a, a book series to uh, you know, a major publisher. So uh, it was the not writing that was my problem. And again, I, because I hadn't written for so long, I think by the time I finally did write, I was already pretty well, um, you know, well, well accomplished as an advertising writer, I could write pretty well, and it was bursting out of me these ideas. So, you know, not to sound like a, a broken record, like a broken record, like a broken record, you, uh, you know, just ignore that voice that says, no, don't do it, and, and take it seriously. Don't uh, uh, treat it like a hobby. If you're passionate about it, make it happen. You're the only one who can. Excellent advice. That's true. Nobody else cares as much as you care. Uh, Alan, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Where can they stock you and buy all your books? Well, I, I would recommend not stalking. I do have an electric fence uh, around the house just in case uh, we have stalkers. Uh, but you can find me online at uh, alanwoodrow.com. And that's two L's, A-L-L-A-N, uh, woodrow.com. Uh, I'm also on, on most social media, so you can find me as well there. But my website uh, certainly is a great place to start. Uh, and as always, uh, esteemed audience, you can find me at middlegradeninja.com. Head over there, uh, follow the link, get your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, check out the schedule for upcoming episodes. Make sure you come back here on Monday. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday, when we'll be chatting with author Laura Martin. Uh, and then later in the week when we chat with uh, Sharon M. Draper and Dan Gutman. So look forward to that. Uh, Alan, I have been asking our guests to sign us off. 
And our sign-off phrase is the very ninja-like, totally justifies the name of the show phrase, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you.